We are glad you're with us on this Saturday morning. I'm Mike Colombo and this is Postscripts. Each week on the show we discuss news and politics with our news partners at the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. I'm joined in studio by Christopher Ave. He is the national and political editor at the Post. And with us from the nation's capital is the paper's Washington Bureau Chief Chuck Rosh. In a week that featured an important midterm election, you'd think that's where we'd start our show. But we'll begin instead with what happened the day after the election, and that's Jeff Sessions resigning his post as Attorney General. In his resignation letter to the President, he wrote, At your request, I am submitting my resignation. Chuck, this resignation is just a technicality. Sessions was effectively fired by the President. No doubt about it, uh, and it was noted um, in social media and other places that the letter actually didn't have a date on it. So one would, one would think it probably was written months ago, maybe weeks ago or whatever. Um, you know, it was, the, it was the least kept secret in Washington that this was going to happen, but it unleashed a series of questions, maybe not events, but questions that, you know, even this weekend are, are not exactly uh, clear the answer to them. Um, and uh, so, you know, we'll see where it goes from there and what it means for the Mueller investigation. Among those questions, the president's announcement that Matthew Whitaker, chief of staff to Sessions, will act as attorney general until a replacement is named. And Whitaker is expected to take oversight, as you alluded to, in the Mueller probe. That selection is already drawing questions, which the president addressed on Friday. Take a listen, and we will discuss it on the other side. I didn't know Matt Whitaker. He worked for uh, attorney general Sessions. He was very, very highly thought of, and still is highly thought of, but this only comes up because anybody that works for me, they do a number on them. But Matt Whitaker is a very smart man. He is a very respected man in the law enforcement community, very respected at the top of the line. And actually, the choice was greeted with raves initially, and it still is in some circles. Well, the truth of the matter is that Mr. Whitaker has been, how should I say, critical of the Mueller investigation, Chuck. How might that impact the Mueller investigation and the criticism that the president has received for putting Mr. Whitaker in this position for now? Well, two points on that. Number one, the president said he didn't know Mr. Whitaker, but there have been reports that they've met maybe a dozen times or so. Now, maybe he did, meant that he didn't know him until he met with him, but... Um, you know, and then on the other point, I think it, it just depends on kind of what the next step is going to be. Um, one of the things that he has uh, opined about in the, in, the, in the past has been, you know, the Mueller investigation could basically be, you know, cut to, to, uh, at the knees because of, uh, you know, the ability to cut off their money. And that could happen. Um, we don't know. There, there are some very serious indications that we're getting pretty close to a report, though. So maybe the whole money question is moot. This could all be part and parcel of something much larger that's going to be happening over the next couple of weeks. And before all of that happened, the president gave his post-election news conference on Wednesday. Of the many strange encounters that occurred, this exchange with CNN's Jim Acosta is getting the most attention. Acosta was asking the president a question when he got into a mini tug-of-war with a Trump staffer trying to take back the microphone. It resulted in Acosta having his White House press credential indefinitely revoked. Christopher, I'll put this to you first. There is a recent, really no precedent, I should say, for this happening. But the larger question is, what is the symbolism that this carries regarding the president's attacks on journalists? Well, just on the face of it, it's sort of like uh, a concrete example of the Trump administration's reaction to journalists. There you see the intern 
uh, for the White House coming up and grabbing the microphone from the reporter, you know, uh, and then Trump uh, attacking Acosta and other journalists there. Uh, th this, again, it just sort of sums up the attitude, the attacks on the press. Trump has repeatedly uh, called news media the fake news, as we know. Now, if news is news, it can't be fake. That, 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 that's a term that has lost all meaning. We shouldn't even use it. But, of course, the president uses it to demean and belittle the press. I think the whole strategy here is to ward off any critical coverage or coverage that he deems critical. Uh, he thinks Acosta is aggressively reporting, too aggressively, too negative. You know, I don't necessarily agree with Acosta's style. I mean, here's someone who allowed himself to be made part of the story, and one can criticize him for that. But that shouldn't reduce, in my estimation, the, uh, the negativity, the, the scrutiny that we should have on the President of the United States constantly demeaning the press, which is a vital part of our democracy, Mike. And Chuck, before we move on to a different topic, just your right. thoughts on the fact that really there is no precedent for what's taken place with the press credential being taken away indefinitely. Right. The, the, that, that, that episode in and of itself is troubling in the sense that, you know, um, and I agree with Christopher, I think the way that that whole thing uh, came across is, was not good for the image of the press. And I think, it, you know, uh, it, one can sort of dissect that from from a different angle. But the thing that really, I think, was concerning to people in, in the White House press corps was what the president said on Friday. And that is, is that there could be more of those. And if start, if we start to have them just wantonly pulling press passes from uh, people that, they, that ask questions that they don't like, then we're, we're entering a constitutional crisis realm here on the First Amendment and the coverage of the president that could really be, um, you know, a Donnybrook here over the next several months. Um, and I hope it doesn't enter that way. I hope, you know, cooler heads prevail, but we're not sure. To think that it's taken us almost 10 minutes to address the Senate race between Josh Hawley and Claire McCaskill seems absurd, but it has just been one of those weeks politically. In the end, Hawley's victory is as much a win for President Trump as it was for Hawley himself. Chuck, especially in the two weeks leading up to the election, Mr. Hawley attached himself to the president. Those two visits by the president here leading up to Election Day certainly playing a large part in that. And he was not the only politician across the country who benefited from their connection to President Trump. Absolutely. I mean, the president, um, you know, did go out and campaign for a lot of people in that last several days, and most of them, as he says, did win. But there's also some data that, you know, the, the, that uh, in the House in particular, those he he endorsed, he didn't do as well as as, as President, former President Obama's endorsees. So it was sort of a mixed message on Trump uh, as it was in the, in the general election itself. The Democrats could end up winning as many as, uh, gaining as many as 40 seats in the House when this is all over. Um, but the fact that the Republicans added to their majority, and we don't know exactly what it's going to be, is it going to be 52, 53, or 54, is going to be huge. Because if you remember, in a lot of these very close Senate votes recently, it was one or two defecting Republicans, like Susan Collins, that were, you know, were making it a very interesting issue. And as Senator Roy Blunt said, there's a heck of a lot of difference between a 53 or 54 seat majority in the Senate than a 51 seat majority in the Senate. Mr. Hawley will be the youngest senator when this class is sworn in. Um, it's going to be uh, very interesting to see how he will lead once he is in office. 
uh, given some of the things that he has gone along with the president on and some of the questions that still remain particularly uh, his stances on health care the pre-existing conditions coupled with being a part in this state of the lawsuit against Obamacare right and, and there are other areas too I mean he's been very outspoken in the past in the areas things like religious freedom things like that a lot of the cultural stuff that the Senate hasn't really taken a look at much lately um, abortion rights, things like that. Um, we, have, we have a piece that we're running in the Sunday paper and will be on, you know, is, is online over the weekend that says, you know, that there are sort of two models of potential senators that he could follow. One is the Tom Cotton model of neighboring Arkansas, who's very much attached himself to Trump and has been, you know, out there uh, almost leading in some ways the, the, the pro-Trump majority in the Senate. And then you've got in another neighboring state, another young senator named Ben Sass, who spent some of the biggest uh, among, among the biggest Republican critics of the president's style and his rhetoric, uh, even though he votes with him a lot of the times. And so, you know, is, is Senator-elect Hawley going to go one or the two of those directions or sort of carve a path between the two? We're, we're not really sure yet. It's going to be very interesting to watch. All right, Chuck, thank you for your time, as always, on this Saturday morning. Great. Still to come thank here you. on Postscripts, we will take a closer look at the other items that made election night headlines. Post-Dispatch reporter Jack Suntrip joins us when Postscripts returns. Welcome back to Postscripts. Let's welcome in Post-Dispatch reporter Jack Suntrup, who joins us this morning via Skype from Jefferson City. Jack, a lot to cover here. Let's start with your main takeaways from election night. Well, if you're a Republican, there's a lot to be happy about. And if you're a Democrat, there's fewer things to be happy about. Um, if you're a Republican, you like that Ann Wagner held on to the second congressional district. Um, you like that Josh Hawley won that Senate seat from Claire McCaskill. Um, and they held on to their supermajorities in the Missouri legislature. Um, if you're a Democrat, uh, you like that Missourians sided with um, your side on uh, raising the minimum wage, um, passing medical marijuana, uh, and, and passing a package of ethics uh, reform that, that uh, the legislature, the Republican-led legislature, hasn't really touched uh, for, for several years now, if not decades. Let's dig in first to that Wagner von Ostern race. Uh, closer than some thought, but in the end, the incumbent prevailed. Yeah, so um, it, it's an interesting district, the second congressional district. It's it's drawn to favor Republicans, but uh, Court Van Ostren, a first-time candidate, got within five points of of Ann Wagner. He raised far less money than she did, um, and. And he got close. He's he's in one of those quote unquote Whole Foods districts um, uh, where where you have a lot of college educated uh, white suburbanites who um, aren't really fans of the Trump administration in ways that maybe rural Republicans are. Um, so it's still a Republican district, but you, you did see a lot of um, voters gravitate toward the Democratic side this time around. Moving on to that auditor race, Nicole Galloway, Sandra McDowell, another race that was probably closer than a lot of people thought. Yeah, so that that's another thing I forgot to mention. If you're a Democrat, you're relieved that uh, uh, Nicole Galloway won that auditor's race. She faced Sandra McDowell, who, um, who was panned for her financial troubles um, during the race. And... Uh, her Nicole Galloway's messaging really broke through, I guess, because she was warning, hey, you know, 
she said that 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 Sandra McDowell wouldn't be able to get an entry level job in in her office, and and so voters sided with Nicole Galloway, even though they they went Republican in in the Senate race and and with. Uh, most of the legislative races um, you saw in in Cole County and Callaway County and Boone County, where there's a lot of state workers. Those three counties all went for Nicole Galloway, interestingly. Um, and and my read on that is just that the state employees and their families and their friends um, were worried about a, a Sandra McDowell um, in the auditor's office. Yeah, uh, Jack, I was just going to make the point I really emphasize your good point there that Sondra McDowell was perhaps the worst candidate in this cycle with with multiple a history of multiple financial problems wanting to be the auditor of the state uh, at the same time there were serious questions raised about her residency she might not have even qualified to be on the ballot much less serve as auditor and yet she came within five points of an incumbent Democrat I mean to me the point there is that the Democratic Party has very little to be happy about moving forward here. If they can barely beat a candidate like McDowell, they're in trouble, Jack. Yeah, that's true. Um, this this was a this was not a good election for Democrats. If you're looking at at offices, um, they you know they lost the Senate race, they lost the auditors race, and they didn't break the Republican supermajority. They didn't really gain any any seats in the legislature. Um, so so. The, the bright, the I guess the silver lining for the Democrats is that on minimum wage, on ethics, on 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 ballot issues, the voters seem to side with with the Democrats. It's just you know when they put candidates forward, um, it's a tough sell. Jack, too many issues, not enough time. The gas tax failed. Voters endorsed the legalization of medical marijuana, an increase to the state's minimum wage, and an ethics package that will certainly rock the capital city's power, as you wrote. Very briefly here with about 30 seconds left, put a bow on it for us. Yeah, well, we need to figure out how to fix our roads again. Um, this is the second time in four years that voters shot down a tax increase to fix our roads. Um, the legislature is going to have to come back and, and figure out what to do about that. Medical marijuana, uh, people with um, acceptable conditions will be able to get some, uh, hopefully in January 2020. Um, ethics, we're going to see new redistricting come 2020 after the census. Uh, and minimum wage, minimum wage workers will get a 85 cent raise uh, in January. All right. Jack Suntrip, we thank you as always for your time. We'll talk to you very soon. Still to come here on Postscripts, how a family of panhandlers we caught on camera are tied to these arrests. We'll also show you the table full of evidence that police say they found. Welcome back to Postscripts. It's important to help the needy. But police say a family of panhandlers were taking advantage of those who helped them, stealing money and identities. Fox 2's Mandy Murphy has an exclusive Fox Files investigation into panhandling in the St. Louis area. Fifteen people from one Romanian family, men, women and children, all taken into police custody, several of the adults arrested. We believe there are some people that are possibly running a scam of some type. 
um, begging for money. But it turned into this $30,000 in checks stolen from Bonham Presbyterian Church in Chesterfield. Signed checks the church was in the process of mailing out, along with personal checks from the public made out to Bonham. Police say one of the men admitted stealing the checks just a couple of hours before they were arrested. They were going from church to church trying to get donations. As they left that church, they noticed a mailbox with the flag up and some checks in it. Uh, we believe they took the checks that were in there, opened them, separated out the ones that they were going to attempt to cash, one of which was actually signed by one of the individuals we have in custody. We initiated this investigation months ago when our cameras spotted a man, woman and small child panhandling at the Walmart at Telegraph and 270. As she sits on a blanket with a baby, the man holds a sign saying, I've lost my job, three kids need food and diapers. God bless you. A St. Louis County police officer shows up and tells them to leave. We follow them to Eureka at 44 and 109, the same routine. She waves at passing cars while giving the baby a bottle with the other hand. Then they move to a nearby QT where the woman walks from car to car asking for money. County police said they had an out-of-state driver's license and their plates were from Arkansas, but we tracked them here to an apartment in St. Anne. And this is where police say they found 15 people living illegally. Only one had an occupancy permit. When police pulled over members of the family, they found panhandling signs and one of the women admitted that's how she gets money. How much money do you collect? Uh, $15. In another car, seven people, including children not in school, pour out of the minivan. Among them, the man we saw panhandling. At the St. Anne apartment, more children and adults, including the woman who was panhandling. Turns out she's only 18, and this was her father. They had nice electronics, nice furniture, uh, everything was up to date. Both of these are fraudulent. This is what police seized as evidence. They found fake green cards, driver's licenses, and social security cards. We found uh, an extensive amount of effort that's gone into getting medical care, uh, income, donations. I have yet to find any indication of an intention to find work. Police found panhandling signs in all of their cars and in the apartment, plus cash. Our indication is that is probably gonna be what they've acquired either that previous day or so far the day we stopped them. Police found this collection box. It's the same one we saw a child carrying into the apartment weeks ago. This one's been set up to be able to take donations in the bottom with a sign up at the top. I believe that's when the kids typically carry or use. Bonham Presbyterian Church is checking to see if they gave money to this family and whether any of their stolen checks were cashed. That was Fox 2's Mandy Murphy reporting. Right now, all of the adults are expected to be charged with occupancy permit violations. Homeland Security, ICE, and the Postal Inspector are all now investigating, and there could be federal charges. Child Services will be called in to make sure these kids get to school. First striking element to that, Christopher, the fact that there are so many of these people all within one home. Yeah, that was stunning, also stunning, and it just, it's just terrible. I mean, you have a lot of need out there, people legitimately needing help and asking for help, and then you have people that take advantage of someone's good nature. Then, to make it even worse, they're stealing checks from a church. I mean, this is money people give to a church. Terrible story, but thanks, Mandy, for pointing it out to us. All right, and we will be right back with Christopher's Trending Topics. Stay with us.
time to take a look at what's trending up, trending down, and what to look for in the week ahead. Christopher has that. Chris, what's up? Well, that's right, Mike. Up, Ruth Bader Ginsburg took a fall this week, breaking three ribs. Now, at 85, she's the oldest Supreme Court justice, but Ginsburg was released from the hospital Friday, and her trainer asserts that she is, quote, tough as nails and will recover completely. Regardless of politics, Ginsburg is an icon for millions of Americans, especially women. Best of luck, Judge Ginsburg. Trending down. Now the temperature. Seems old man winter has made an early appearance here in the St. Louis area. Lows below 20 degrees. Chance of snow, maybe more on Monday. Does this mean we should expect a brutal winter? Well, at least one long-range forecast, the one from the Farmer's Almanac, thinks that will be the case. Let's hope they're wrong. But in the meantime, bundle up, people. We have completely lost spring and fall. Absolutely. We go straight to summer and Absolutely. winter. Absolutely. And a trend to watch. Well, the long-promised, long-delayed Loop Trolley will have an official grand opening Thursday. Now, no one is saying that rides will actually start that day, but officials are hopeful. With so many delays and problems, I do think it's time to get on board. Let's hope there are no further setbacks, Mike. All right, Christopher, thank you. And thank you all at home for joining us here on Postscripts. Remember to keep up to date throughout the week. Check us out on stltoday.com and fox2now.com. Another reminder, for the next several weeks, we will be showing you right here in this Saturday morning spot. Set your DVRs, and we'll be sure to let you know when we return to Sundays. Have a great week. We'll see you back here next week for Postscripts.